Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at IER. And joining me today to discuss the blackouts in Texas is IER's Director of Policy, Kenny Stein. Kenny, it's good to see you. Yep, good to be here. Um, so there's a number of competing sort of narratives that, uh, in the wake of the blackouts in Texas that um, I think a useful way to talk about this might be to go through some of those competing claims and sort out fact from fiction. And one of the main competing things here is just, is this a case of just a sort of freak weather event that couldn't have been planned for, or were there actual policy failures that were involved here? Uh, what are your initial thoughts there? So it's it's definitely I'd say both. Okay. <laughs> you know, this that's the thing about this this disaster is that there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, but it, it, initially, let's just be clear that this was a historic uh, storm, historic uh, low temperatures. Um, for the time of year, the record these set record temperatures all across the entire state, and it flirted with the all-time records going back to I think 1899 was uh, when the all-time records were set, and those records of course were set in December, which is December and January is the normal cold time, uh, relatively cold time in Texas. It's very unusual for it to be this late in February, so it was an extreme amount of cold, and not only was it an extreme amount of cold, it covered the entire state. Texas will periodically get cold cold fronts that move in. Um, but it's normally, you know, it'll be the northern half of the state will be really cold. The southern half of the state will be fine. Um, so that has an effect on the electricity distribution because normally Texas is big enough that you can move electricity around to the parts of the state that need it. But this time the entire state was at freezing or below freezing, even down the Rio Grande Valley in northern Mexico. It was below freezing. So everybody was using electricity. Everybody needed heat. So let's, let's have that in the back of our minds that this was... Uh, Virtually unprecedented. It's comparable to some early nineteen, early twentieth century and late nineteenth century storms, but those also remember were before Texas had electricity. So it's it's just a different uh, situation. However, you know, having said all that, uh, deep freezes are not uncommon in Texas. They happen periodically. There was one in twenty eleven. There was another big one in nineteen eighty nine. Both times, millions of people lost power. So. While the, these types of freezes are infrequent and this was an extreme freeze, it still happens regularly and the grid could have and should have been better planned for it. So that's where you get into the policy issues. So I'll just, just as at, the, at a high level, I, the, I, sort of rank, I sort of have a, my own ranking of sure. responsibility. Like what, you know, and this is sort of in order of highest to lowest. First of all, uh, ERCOT, the Texas grid regulator, uh, I think had a planning failure. They just, they didn't, it was, whether it was a lack of imagination or not, you know, not, you know, looking at the information hard enough, not preparing, there was a planning failure, very clearly. Uh, secondly, you know, Texas homes and buildings and infrastructure pipelines just aren't built for this kind of cold. They're designed for the middle of summer to shed heat. They're, they're not designed to retain heat. So when you get extreme cold outside, the Texas homes, Texas buildings, just, they don't, they're not designed for that. And so it takes an enormous amount of uh, gas or electricity or anything to, to keep the home, keep a house even like tolerable, at a tolerable temperature. So that's really, that's an important part in that because that drove up demand hugely. Third, uh, the Texas market design. This exposed some weaknesses in the Texas market design. Uh, it clearly doesn't sufficiently incentivize uh, power plants being winterized. 
you know, there, there's no financial incentive for that. And there's not enough financial incentive to have backup power supplies online. And you saw the, the weaknesses of both of those were cruelly exposed, you know, this past week. Uh, fourth, uh, reliance on intermittent power sources, especially wind. You know, uh, over 20% of Texas's electricity last year came from wind, and wind did not contribute to this crisis. So, and that's a problem when it's a, when it's a fifth of your supplies. And then finally, uh, natural gas generation is the dominant, uh, it's almost 50%, maybe a little more than 50% of Texas electricity generation. The problem is in the winter, there is competition for natural gas for home heating. 40% of Texas homes heat, are heated with natural gas. So when they're both competing for power, you know, home heating wins out, it takes priority over power generation. And that, uh, exacerbated the supply problems that we saw. So, so again, there's blame to go all around, but that's sort of, in my personal opinion, the order of responsibility. Sure. Looking at the individual sources, one of the things that's come out of this is everyone's sort of scrambling to pick one to blame or, you know, their preferred one, I suppose. Um, could you just talk through um, how each source kind of performed and uh, the process of, you know, why was it that wind generation wasn't available? Why was it that uh, natural gas, even though it was carrying most of the load, um, what caused some of the problems there in terms of it being available? Right. So, yeah, let's be clear. Every, every generation, major generation source, source had some outages, like for various reasons. Uh, nuclear, one of the nuclear reactors in Texas, there's only a couple, but one of them actually tripped offline. Now, it was, a, it was a sensor problem. It wasn't anything wrong with the reactor itself, and the reactor eventually came back online, but it was offline for a couple days. Uh, there were several coal plants where the, the water, they, they use water to run their steam turbines. The water froze, and so they, their water intakes were frozen, so they couldn't, they, they couldn't run those plants. Uh, a similar thing happened at some natural gas plants. They also need water supplies, and their water froze. You also had natural gas, like I, one, I, like one supply issues. Like I just said, the home homes were prioritized, which is rightly so. But that meant that some power plants, that natural gas power plants that were perfectly functional, couldn't get gas supplies. Uh, on top of that, a supply issue for natural gas was. Uh, the pipelines not being uh, insulated, gathering lines in West Texas not being insulated in the right way uh, because they're not designed for winter. They're not buried below the frost line in the ground. So there were supply issues at a lot of natural gas plants. There was also natural gas plants. Some of them had, um, there's been reports of some of them had, you know, some of their components that aren't winterized, not built for the cold weather, you know, froze. They had various, you know, cold weather issues. Um, and then in addition to pipeline supply issues, uh, a lot of wells in West Texas, uh, when the blackout started, the these pumps, the compressors, the wells, they run on electricity. And once their electricity is cut off, those wells shut down. So you lost a bunch, you, you already had a supply problem. And then when the electricity failed, there was even worse supply problems. And then on, when then you get to wind, where wind says, uh, there's almost 30 uh, megawatts of capacity built in Texas. Um, Wind normally generates poorly in the winter, so ERCOT was not expecting wind to carry a lot of the load. They were only expecting around 7,000 megawatts contribution. Um, in the event, wind actually came in you know, even lower that, below half of that. Um, so wind already had a low bar, and they fell well below that low bar. Um, it was partly because of wind turbines freezing, but um, also it's just that in cold weather, there's often not a lot of wind. And so the Wind turbines just can't, even the ones that weren't frozen couldn't really contribute that much electricity. So 
it was everybody failed to some degree, but it was. I, I think I was actually in the order in the order I just went. I think was the order of reliability was the the most reliable was nuclear, then coal, then gas, and then wind. Defenders of renewables have been sort of dismissing criticisms here by saying, "Well, we weren't expected to be producing anything, anyways. So how could this be our fault?" I think you know the average person hears that and says, "Like a football game was played and a team loses." And uh, people are looking to say, you know, who underperformed or whatever. And someone says, uh, well, it wasn't me because I didn't show up to the game to play at all. Yeah. Right. Like, like, I wasn't, it, I wasn't it, expected right, to be yeah, there anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, I know. I think it's, it's, a, it's kind of an amusing spin. They're basically saying that you shouldn't, you, no, you weren't relying on us anyway. Of course we're not reliable. Like, I mean, yeah. like, is that really the, the message you want to send? But the, there's, there's two elements that, I do again. I, I included intermittent reliance as one of my many reasons for this failure, and I think there's I think there's two components to that. Why I say that one is that clearly it's not rely. You can't rely on it in an emergency. Like this is part of the reason that uh, something like natural gas is so important is because what we saw is that natural gas ramped up production hugely. Now they then some plants were then knocked offline, but they still ended, they were massively producing more than the week before. Wind, on the other hand, you can't just turn up the wind when, when you need more electricity. That's part of the problem with wind not being dispatchable. So there, there's that half, the, there's the short term that you can't rely on an emergency. And if the wind dies, you're screwed. But then there's also wind has a long-term impact on the Texas market. And this is when I talk about how the last year, uh, over 20% of electricity generation was coming from wind. The problem is, is that long-term wind cannibalizes other electricity sources. Wind gets primacy. So when the wind's blowing, wind gets to sell its electricity. Everybody else has to dial back, whether it's gas or coal, sometimes even nuclear. They have to dial back their production to give wind primacy. Uh, the problem is, is that those other generation sources, that, that destroys their economics because they still have their costs. They've got to maintain their plants. They've got to sit there and wait until they're able to provide electricity. So over the long term, you have uh, power plants in Texas that ended up being, it's particularly coal, but it's other plants too, that if they were run at a normal capacity, they are perfectly, perfectly solvent. They can make money. But if they have to run as peakers or ramp up and down to compensate for wind, they lose money. So they all got shut down. Uh, and, that, and that left us exposed in a situation like this where you don't have wind, but there's the backup all got shut down because wind destroyed the economic. I want to talk about coal generation a little bit. Um, for whatever reason, people seem to be avoiding uh, discussing it, at least in the Twitter sphere and stuff. But um, obviously, Texas's uh, electricity mix, the generation from coal, has declined quite a bit in recent years. Um, in some ways, that's tied to lower natural gas prices, but uh, what you kind of just laid out there, also, it, um, wind generation is having impact on the, the economics of coal plants as well. Sure. Can you just talk about that issue maybe a little bit more? And Yeah, so in Texas, in the last 10 years, I, I think it's about uh, tech, the coal's percentage of electricity generation has fallen by about, by about half in Texas. And like you said, that in Texas, that is primarily because of natural gas. In other parts of the country, coal is being shut down because of wind or because of because of you know harmful regulatory environment frankly but in Texas natural gas is dirt cheap it's almost too cheap to meter uh, because 
uh, when you're producing oil out in West Texas, a lot of gas comes up with that oil. So all these oil wells are, they're producing gas not for to sell for the market. They're producing the oil as their product, but then they have lots of gas like just sitting around, and they there's there's not enough market for it. Frankly, I mean this is this has actually been a criticism uh, from some environmentalists of the oil production in West Texas is they end up venting and flaring a lot of natural gas because there's not a market for it. Like it's so cheap. And so in Texas, that means that natural gas is so dirt cheap that it's perfect for power generation because it's so cheap. It can can outcompete coal. Now, wind also plays a part in that too. You know, as I said before, harming the economics of coal plant, coal plants are not designed to ramp up and down. They're meant to run at a steady state for, you know, all over a year round. So it's it was a one-two punch that has driven a lot of coal plants out of business in Texas. Um, but this incident actually exposes why that's a problem. You know, Texas has not hasn't worried about this because their normal peak demand is during the summer. So during the summer, natural gas doesn't have competition for home heating. It can be all natural gas that you can produce can be used to you know keep the air conditioning on. Um, so. But in the winter, like we like we saw, there's supply there's supply competition for homes, and that is a place that had there been more coal, there's no there's no supply competition for coal. It's power generation. I mean, there's obviously there's some coal that's used in, you know, making making iron and some industrial processes. But the thermal you know thermal coal for power plants, there's no competition for it. So. This actually, that's what's interesting is that, you know, everyone is pretty confident that coal is dying in this country, but this sort of incident exposes the importance of, you know, maybe not having your whole entire grid 100% coal, but having some coal there as a diversity, as as, as an emergency backup when other things start failing. So one last uh criticism, I guess, of Texas that I've seen is the fact that their grid is sort of separated from... Uh, other ISOs. Right. Is it the case that had there been more connections that the MISO or one of the other ISOs would have had electricity even available to sell into yeah. Texas? And- so so the, the, te- the United States is divided into three interconnected power grids. There's a western grid, an eastern grid, and then Texas, <laughs> ERCOT, which is, it's not the entire state of Texas, it's about 90% of the state. A little bit of East Texas and a little bit of the Panhandle and El Paso are part of the east and west grids. But Texas does have its own self-contained grid, and there's only, a, there's a couple small interconnections with the eastern grid and a couple small interconnections with Mexico, but it's largely an island. And that's, that was a, that was a policy decision made by the state uh, to avoid interference from federal federal regulators. If it's not across, if there's no interstate uh, commerce, they get to regulate their own electricity. So normally that has not been a problem in the past because Texas is big enough, like I said at the beginning, that if it's cold somewhere or they need extra power somewhere, it's a big enough state that you can move it around. And this incident exposed that, you know, when the entire state's freezing, there is no extra power to go around. However, even had there been, I mean, Texas was importing from the interconnections it has but those were fairly low capacities. But the the problem with this whole theory that if Texas was connected into the the eastern grid that this wouldn't have happened is that the two neighboring grids, MISO, the Mid-Continent, and uh, Southwest Power Pool, also had rolling blackouts during this incident. Now, they weren't as bad as Texas. They were were temporary blackouts rather than multi-day blackouts. But 
they didn't have enough electricity for their own customers. So even if you had ERCOT fully integrated in the Eastern Grid, there still would have been, might not, maybe not quite as bad, maybe, but there still would have been blackouts. That, that wasn't like a magical solution that would have solved this. So we know from history that an event like this is going to lead to calls to do something uh, from the government. Um, what are some poli policy changes, if there are any, that you think could be made to avoid something like this from happening? And where would you caution uh, policymakers in terms of uh, places that they might want to go? Right. So the... This is the one thing that is very obvious, and it was actually recommended after the 2011 freeze, where millions of people lost power as well, is doing more winterization of power plants and of natural gas lines and and power lines in general. And that's the type of thing that it it can be relatively expensive, but there are you know you don't have to gold plate the entire grid. There are steps you can take below that. You can you know winterizing the power plant itself is really should have been done after 2011. That's this. Uh, that's something that, honestly, the pro part of the, this is what I was talking about, the Texas market doesn't incentivize that. Um, there wasn't a financial incentive for, for plants to do this. But honestly, this is, I mean, I hate, I hate government mandates in general, but this is the type of thing I think the state government just needs to mandate, that all power plants be winterized, and the state needs to provide money to help pay for that, but I, I think you just have to mandate it. And that's, and that's something that it, Again, it wouldn't have solved this problem that we just had. Like this extreme weather, you're, you were going to lose. You know, power lines are going to go down. You're, some pipelines are going to freeze. Like that, that's going to happen regardless. But it would have mitigated this circumstance hugely. And you would have ended up with like actual rolling power outages instead of a long multi-day outage. So that's the biggest thing. Um, and that's something, I, this, it sounds like the legislature is already moving towards doing that. And that's something that, again, it'll cost money, but... It's a relatively small cost to prevent this kind of full-scale disaster like this. Um, there are also, as I was talking about with the Texas market design, I'm not. I'm, I'm. I've been thinking over this myself: how to do it, to tweak the market design in order to incentivize, to provide some incentive for uh, backup capacity, have capacity. Other other ISOs have actual capacity markets where you literally companies literally bid to provide power, you know, have power capacity in three years or whatever, you know, sometime mm -hmm. in the future. And the idea is that that way they may, they have, they're making some money in order to have backup capacity. Texas doesn't have that. It's literally dollar on demand, like real time. Um, you get paid for providing electricity today and that's it. And that's the only way you can make money. So there's zero incentive to have, a well, not zero. It's the way it has been assumed that the market would work is that, when you have an incident like this, power prices spike. They, there's, a, there's a price cap of $9,000 per megawatt hour or something, um, which Texas was at that price cap for, for most of the week last week. Um, and the thought was that the, those prices, that price incentive would be so big that there would be you know, uh, organic capacity. There's a market incentive for somebody to have a power plant ready to to, you know, to meet that peak demand and, you know, make a killing uh, in order to do that. Um, clearly, uh, in a winter event, that was a poor assumption. It didn't, it was wrong. Um, now, this is part of the problem with the way Texas's market design, when we're, Texas normally is talking about summer peaks. And that market design, that idea probably works better in the summer because, again, 
all of these natural gas plants won't don't have competition for supply. Um, you also have you also have the the, the if you have need to have rolling blackouts or 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 need demand response. It's easier to do that in the summer. It's easier to tell people to you know turn their thermostats from sixty five up to seventy five, you know, and save a bunch of power. The problem is in the winter, you know, people's homes do you. There's a there's a minimum there. Like you, you, if someone loses their AC in the summer, they'll be uncomfortable, but they're not going to die. In the winter, you lose heating, people die. So there's, it's the market design clearly was designed with summer peaks in mind, and that's what they were trying to incentivize. And maybe that works well enough for meeting summer peak demand. It clearly does not work well enough uh, for a winter incident. So I, you know, I'm not sure how exactly. To tweak that market to provide that capacity, it, it honestly may be something that the state government maybe needs to just subsidize some backup capacity, you know, for emergencies. Um, you know, maybe we need better better demand response processes that you can shut down industrial facilities in order to reroute that electricity. You know, it, it, but clearly the way the market is designed now, there needs to be a tweak because it's not there's not enough incentive uh, for that backup. And frankly, if we're going to continue adding, this is another thing, the warning about intermittence, if we are going to continue increasing the amount of wind on the Texas grid, this is going to become a bigger problem because part of the way you maintain backup capacity is you run, say, your natural gas power plant at just barely break even. You know, you run at 30 or 40 percent, just a break even rate so that you have your extra capacity when there's money to be made. But if there's more and more wind, if you can't even run your gas plant at a minimum break-even rate, then then you want to shut that down. Like there's, there, you're not gonna you're not gonna pay to maintain a facility that's not making any money on the hope that maybe ten years from now there'll be another incident where I could turn it on and you know run it. The the, the incentives there are out of whack, and wind increasing amounts of wind makes those incentives even more out of whack. So is there anything that we haven't discussed here on this topic that you think is important for our listeners? No, I think we've just about covered everything. Thanks. So I guess today has been Kenny Stein from IER. Kenny, thanks for your time today.